Blog Talk Radio. This is Gail Sylvia, and today is a beautiful day and quite a unique um, perspective on a Sylvia Global broadcast. You're going to be hearing my story, and it's being told to a wonderful, wonderful sister friend, Dr. Melanie Harris. Hi, Melanie. How are you? Good morning, Gail Sylvia. I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much for this opportunity. I'm excited to forward this conversation. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm all yours. You take it away. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, it is a glorious day here, too, and so this is a really, really wonderful opportunity to share with everyone, but to hear more about your story. I am so excited to um, be able to connect with you and to commune with you in spirit and in truth in this particular moment. Gail, Sylvia, I want to thank you so much for being willing to share. Your life and your story is so great and truly amazing. And there are those of us who look at you and think, wow, that is exactly who I want to be. And yet I think many of us don't always know uh, the kind of trials and tribulations that you've also come through to be the shining light that you are. If you wouldn't mind, Gail Sylvia, bringing us into the beginnings of how you began this journey of coming into the light, even beginning with some basic biographical information about where and how you came to this wonderful planet, your parents, your grandparents, and where you were born. It would be wonderful to hear just some of your narrative about the beginnings and how you got started. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, Let's open with prayer, and then that will help me to know... um, that it's it's beyond my my comprehension, <laughs> but it's, I'll be I'll be speaking exactly how I live, and that's from a place of faith and trust. Okay, and Great. God Almighty, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time with um, these wonderful wonderful people around the world, and this very very special lady, Melanie Harris. Uh, I ask that your words flow through and that you give me clarity and that you speak the words that are needed to encourage others, to inspire and to glorify you and to show what an amazing God we serve, what an amazing God created this universe, and what an amazing God still loves us and is near us and has plans for us, a future and a hope as promised in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, man. You know, uh, I recently, well, let me back up. I I listen to a lot of audio books. I I actually enjoy reading, but I don't find myself allotting the amount of time to actually sit down with a book the way that I would like to. And Mm -hmm. so as a result, 
I listen to a lot of audio books. And I have quite a few that I I read here or repeat pretty frequently, um, depending on the circumstances or the calling in my own heart. And sometimes I'll just go to them and there will be a message in there that didn't resonate before that will have some strong meaning. Um, A part of my daily practice in one book that I do read and sit down, and I also listen to audio on audio as well, is my Bible. And I think that the... um, the importance of that, both the practice of being still and being quiet to read God's Word in a book, um, for me to hold the tangible pages of a written document that someone has poured out and has been shared or left behind um, for others is a blessing for me and guides a great part of my life and my ability to make decisions and when I feel disabled in my ability to do certain things. Such a powerful reference to be able to know that God, our Creator's Word, is in print as a source of guidance and a reminder. So um, I just start the, each day um, with my Bible, and that was a practice that was instilled in me. Um, I, did I consciously started implementing into my life in junior high school? Um, in seventh grade when I received a booklet or saw a booklet called The Daily Bread, and it just had a morning, and I, to this day, still get it and use it. It's sitting in my driver's side door. Um, a daily devotional, you know, that tells a story and has a Bible verse and a short prayer and a thought for the day. And just on that small page, um, I can have a point of a Bible reference to open my Bible to. And so before getting out of the bed um, each morning, as soon as I open my eyes, uh, to reach for my Bible, you know, to greet the new day, um, by greeting God from a place of gratitude. And to then take um, that quiet time and if there are abundance of concerns that may be weighing heavy, to use that time to place them in God's hands before I even step out the bed. I think that um, without realizing it, a part of that habit may also have been instilled in me by observation. Um, within our household. And um, something as simple as, you know, as young as I can, far back as I can remember, my parents lining my siblings and I um, along the side of our bed and them being on their knees and us saying our goodnight prayers. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, um, in, in you know, as a probably about six years old, um, experiencing my first awareness to the power of prayer when mm-hmm. uh, we were told, you know, Disneyland had recently opened and we were learning about Disneyland and this place called Disneyland. And we lived in Southern California, but it still seemed like it was hundreds of miles away in a different world. Mm-hmm. And we were scheduled to go to Disneyland. And it was raining and thunder and lightning and the forecast with Walter Conkright and the, the 
nightly broadcast show, you know, there was Tom Brokoff, I think it was, you know, there was to be more rain. And we were really sad and our parents told us to pray, you know, that the same God that we were praying to to thank him for the day and to watch over it as us at night was the same God who controlled the weather and mm-hmm. controlled all the universe. And if it was his will, um, then we would know by, you know, there wouldn't be any rain the next morning. And I think in the, as I reflected at different times, Melanie, on hearing our parents share those words of wisdom with us, also in that message was, uh, you know, even if we, when we pray and we ask, if we don't experience the the immediate desired outcome that we're asking for, to still trust and know that God must have had a greater plan that we're a part of. And so our prayer was actually a place to rest our concerns, to place our worry, and to be more concerned with the placement and a place for that concern or that heart's desire and to learn how to take allow that to have more precedence than whatever our our desired outcome may be. Uh, you know, it took, you know, many, many years of reflecting on the, that moment to arrive at a lot of life lessons, you know, associated with my faith. But uh, in our experience, gloriously, the next morning, uh, we there were, again, um, four of us sharing a bedroom, and there, was, there were two bunk beds and a single bed, and our brother slept on the top bunk, and he was closest to the Venetian blinds. <laughs> and, uh, if you remember those, yes, <laughs> before yes. it predated many blinds, <laughs> and you know the sun was shining bright. You know there were birds. I you know, I remember the the ivy on the fence outside our bedroom window and the honeysuckle um, that bloomed there. Uh, it was all a glorious sight. And our parents, we ran in the room like Christmas morning and got our parents up, you know, like, it's God heard us. You're like, let's go. And we actually went. You know, we have a picture of us at Disneyland. Um, I saw one recently that my sister had at her house that day. So uh, one of the things that I was also going to mention that I read recently or I heard recently in an audio book was by Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he said, made reference to us being spiritual beings, mm-hmm. having a human experience. Mm-hmm. And what if, you know, before we left heaven, you know, we're there in the, the glorious throne room with the creator of all life. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I have an assignment for you. You have an opportunity to go and do something wonderful. Um, are you interested in as a, a you know a spiritual being and a child of God, I said sure. You know, in in Wayne Dyer's story, he said sure. You know, um, and he said, well, you know, what would you like to do? And he said, and you know, I'm, this is not a direct quote, but references made to acknowledge him. You know, where I heard this, um, 
you know, I want to go and teach people how to be strong and confident and independent Mm -hmm. in their thinking and to know that they've been created for to do that. And and the Lord replies, okay, that's your assignment. Uh, Get on with it. And you're going to start by living in an orphanage so that you learn how to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so he spent the first ten years, or ten years at least, of his life um, growing up in an orphanage and mm-hmm. abandoned by his father, and learning how to do exactly what he ends up teaching the world. So at times, you know, when I've reflected on, you know, gosh, I wonder what my assignment was when I signed up. <laughs> you know, and I believe that a big part of that assignment that I committed to was to demonstrate that in a world filled with so much worry and negativity and despair and darkness, to remind people that there is good around us. There is good uh, within us. And we were created from goodness, which is why... Uh, we may view it in an abbreviated term with G-O-D in the English language, but he is a great and good God. And to show and live a life of faith that exemplifies all of the ways that we can experience and share God's goodness with one another. Mm. And to actually live a life that's... um, filled with joy, and have that be our source of strength, even in the midst of, uh, in the midst of, whatever. That is beautiful. Thank you. Wow. I, it's wonderful to hear this abiding in joy that you're talking about and to hear it in the family context, um, your own family from your own parents, and it sounds like even devotions that you do even today was modeled for you in some way. I know being in your home and being in your family, a circle of prayer in which the family and friends participated right there in the kitchen was a deeply moving experience for me, in part because it was so normal. For you all, it's a regular practice every day. Would you mind sharing, Gail Sylvia, a little bit more maybe about maybe other examples that your parents taught you to pray or hearing your father's voice praying for you or your mother's voice Mm -hmm. praying for you and what impact that has had on your own spiritual journey and understanding of life? Mm. You know, you and I had the uh, opportunity to really share some wonderful fellowship time together by phone yesterday. You know, that's what led to this conversation today. And every time we get together, uh, whether it's by phone or in person, God always seems to do something rich this Mm -hmm. morning. So part of what I was sharing uh, and that I did experience and thank you for those kind words, uh, was that we do have um, parents and grandparents that taught us to pray. We did grow up uh, going to church 
and being a part of a worship service, even though I don't regard um, those formative years as us being a part of a, a deeply rooted in a church. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there were periods when I don't remember um, us going to church as a family, and but I do clearly remember my parents um, getting us, um, allowing us to go visit other friends' churches mm-hmm. and other people inviting us to church. You know, there was a period I went, again, also in junior high school, to a Catholic church with a neighbor friend. And, um, you know, being able to observe their worship versus going to church with, you know, the Black Baptist Church with my grandmother, you know, and and worship and faith. So prayer, yes, it it is um, a normal part of our family life. And Mm -hmm. I'm very, very um, thankful and blessed to have a husband for whom he's made it a priority and a part of our family life. Mm -hmm. And it was a part um, in the later years of his family life um, as well. Uh, One of the things that recently happened to us was in January 7, 2011, was my father's funeral. Mm -hmm. And my in-laws flew out from Connecticut to California to attend, you know, my father's funeral. And they knew my father and, you know, were close to my father and our families get along very, very well. Uh, And the day after, because uh, it had been so close to Christmas and none of us really, you know, had experienced a you know, our traditional Christmas, the spirit of Christmas mm-hmm. celebration. Um, we had our Christmas gathering, um, mm-hmm. you know, with my in-laws the day after the funeral because his funeral was on a Saturday, so that Sunday. So after worship service together, you know, after an incredibly powerful worship funeral service the day before, um, my mother-in-law, who is just graduating from seminary this year, my mother-in-law, all of us three generations in a circle, and she referenced something that they had been studying or exploring in one of her classes associated with our father's voices and Mm -hmm. hearing our fathers and mothers pray for us. Um, A little bit more common, you know, for us to associate a mother's voice with prayer uh, not as common, at least openly discussed, with a father's the power of a father's voice. Mm-hmm. And so she, we were all in our, you know, in a circle, holding hands. Again, three generations. And my mother-in-law pointed out that she had never, in her entire life, heard her father pray for her and her sisters and brothers and call them by name you know, praying specifically for them to hear his voice Hmm. in her ear. She had heard him pray, you know, to bless a meal before they would eat, um, but not his voice praying for them by name. Hmm. And so she was emphasizing what what influence 
that has on us and how powerful that can be and is for us. And I had grown up hearing my father pray uh, for all of us, Um, perhaps collectively. um, Maybe in time I'll recall individual name by name, but I'm inclined to believe I, you know, during, you know, just the way that our family prays, especially during special holidays when we're all together as adults, you know, more name by name. You know, thanking God for us, each of us, and um, knowing my mother does pray for us. But I don't have um, any specific experiences that I can point to that I recall hearing my mother in her voice um, during a formal time of prayer, name by name. Although I do know that my mother prays for all of us. So what we did was we began with my uh, our, our son, who's in his 30s, mm-hmm. prayed over his daughters, name mm-hmm. by name, or his daughter, and then um, name, you know, and called. And all of us had our hands around him and over him and as he was holding her. And then his father, my husband, um, prayed for him and our daughter, who is a niece that we raised, that we love, like as a daughter, he prayed for each of them, name by name, and their children, name by name, and for me, and very specifically for each of us. And then his father prayed for him and for each of us, name by name. And then... It was absolutely beyond comprehension the the the, the power of experiencing that uh, together, and then knowing that the prayers of our fathers are being heard by and modeled by the prayers of our heavenly Father for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Wow, it feels powerful. It feels powerful even in this moment. There's a scripture that comes to mind that echoes just what you've said, which is Isaiah 43. And I'll just read a part of it here. It says, but now this is what the Lord says. God who has created you, O Jacob, who has formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. I have called mm-hmm. you by name. Mm-hmm. You know, not not by uh, hey you, <laughs> you <know>? right? <laughs> or um, you know some vague reference, uh, but by name. Mm-hmm. I was sharing with um, another a goddaughter yesterday, uh, who's sister is going through a troubling time. They're absolutely, absolutely amazing young ladies that have been through unbelievable, you know, challenges. Um, A mother with, uh, that's unfortunately suffered from the disease of alcoholism. Mm. And since she was 14, basically raising her mother and a younger daughter and uh, a younger sister. And then we met, you know, in the hospital uh, when my father was there and um, had had a stroke and 
she was there and her mother was, you know, the final leg of um, dying from liver liver disease. Mm. And I had seen her um, in the emergency room, um, not the emergency room, the waiting room one night. I had been there for several nights at that point and had to step out during the changing with the nurses' station and the, the nursing staff. And I was absolutely just worn out, you know, just... I'm not. I didn't feel like there was a cell in my body that could move. Mm. And again, a testament to God does things when we are unable mm. and is moving within us when we not only aren't aware of it, but we may not even know when or how or if we're able to move. Mm. And I'll come back at another time and share the incredible story behind that story. But this young lady, the next day, I, a couple of days later, I saw her collapsed in my mother and my brother's arms mm. in the hallway. And I recognized her from that earlier night in the waiting room when I couldn't get up and go to her to physically pray with her. And mm. she was in such distress, but someone was there praying with her in that waiting room. And in my spirit, the Lord's like, well, you don't have to. It would be nice if you would get up and move, but pray for her from here. Pray mm. that wherever we are, for anyone anywhere in the world, to pray. And I was listening to her, so we've become very close um, and remain very, will remain very close. I was listening to her yesterday uh, talking about some of the challenges that her younger sister is now going through and uh, saying, you know, Let's just keep praying because God knows her by name. Mm. He created her for a very, very special reason. And she may be searching for love in all the wrong places, but we know where the right place is. Let's pray for her to get to that right place Mm. in the arms of God's love. So I... um, really believe, you know, Melanie, that staying and trying to abide in that awareness mm-hmm. that our great God loves us and created us for wonderful works, big and small, in man's eyes, in his eyes, all of them all of them matter and all of us matter. Mm. Ah, thank you. This beautiful Uh, remembrance of abiding in awareness and the beautiful recognition that all of us matter is one of the central messages I remember receiving as a part of Girls Fly. And it's significant, I think, that you've shared stories of your deep connection and prayer with uh, your goddaughter and then also your niece and there is something Gail, very, very special about the gift and um, graces of women and girls that is alive and enlightened in your very being and in your very heart. It is as if you were just saying that a part of the assignment that you received as a spirit being all those eons ago is alive in you right now at such a time as this for such a time as this, um, even in a world where women and girls often don't find a voice and often do go through many, many struggles, 
facing the choice every day about whether to see themselves as fully human and fully divine or not. Tell us a little bit, if you will, about the power of prayer, (laughs) the power of the call, and the power of light that is in your heart and in your hands with the power of Girls Fly. Mm. (laughs) You know what? It's... um, I live an amazing life. <laughs> I, just, I, I absolutely live an amazing life. Uh, well, ask the question again. <laughs> so, I know where, so I know where to begin. <laughs> Let's maybe start with um, this, the hearing from God that you have received, particularly for a passion for girls and women, I know that it extends beyond girls' fly, but I do know that there's a particular call that you have lived out beautifully um, here in the United States and that you will be living out. When did that call begin, or when did you begin hearing God's voice speak to you about girls' fly? Okay. You're a little bit muffled, just so you okay. know. Okay. Of. Well, I'm sharing this story with you uh, in this experience on May 13th, 2013. And mm. that's today. Today's the 13th, right? Or today is the 11th, actually. 11th. Oh, good. I don't want to rush it ahead. The May 11th. <laughs> uh, you know what? It's kind of interesting. Today's May the 11th. On May the 7th in 2011, mm. uh, I did something that I was considering as a test run of of an experience that that's called Girls Fly in Tucson, Arizona. And the reason I regarded it as a test run was because nothing that I was aware of or had experienced had ever been done like this before. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure how it was going to be received, but what I was definitely sure of was that I was supposed to do it. And so what happens to me is that if I just pay attention and I simply just listen, then there are so many wonderful people and needs and ideas that are just present right before us. Hmm. And so what happened with Girls Fly originated from three wonderful girls that were our neighbors at the time, uh, Amy, Hannah, and Emily, at the time 8, 10, and 14, 12 or 14. Uh And we uh, used to just spend lots of time together. Oh, just incredible girls! When we first moved into the, our house in that in that cul-de-sac, there were only two and a half houses um, at that end of the street. Only eight in the entire um, gated that community, gated community. And the as the moving trucks, I mean, they were still moving things out. This lady came and to the door and had this home. Baked, piping hot um, banana bread that she had made for us, 
and this beautiful Irish lilt in her voice welcoming us. And the first thing she said after she welcomed us was, or the second thing, was, um, I have four kids, and I hope they don't get too loud. If they do, let me know. And I hugged her. I was jumping up and down. I said, I'm so glad you have four kids. As long as they're good kids, we're cool. You know, (laughs) we we were really um, concerned and wanting to, preferring to be in a neighborhood that had children because Mm -hmm. it does something completely different to the atmosphere than in a lot of, um, you know, some areas of cities like Tucson where there's a lot of, senior citizens um, Mm -hmm. and retirees. We didn't want that experience, and it was hard to tell. We didn't know what was going on on that street because there were only eight houses, and, and you know, there were only um, two and a half. Well, so eventually, you know, her wonderful, wonderful children end up spending lots of time at our house and sleeping over at our house. Their dog stays at our house. And, wow. Um, he started um, paying close attention to the wonderful women and girls that I had been meeting throughout Mexico because of our business there at the border. And the wonderful women and girls I was meeting throughout Arizona, especially Tucson, um, incredible women doing incredible things, open hearts, just absolutely fabulous. And um, at a luncheon, um, this piece right here is associated with philanthropy, uh, and that's another you know story I want to share with you. But at a luncheon for the U of A College of Public Health, I overheard a gentleman at the table on the other side of the table make reference to his daughter um, and his family, that they were, he was going to be taking a sabbatical in Japan, and that he had a daughter that was 14 who was not real enthusiastic about this trip, and everyone else was. And I politely butted into his conversation. <laughs> <laughs> in Japan, but I had just come back, uh, you know, a year or so before taking two of my nieces that were the wow. same age to Japan. And if he didn't mind putting me in touch with his daughter, um, I would give her and their family some tips on some things to do personalized for a teenage girl in Japan that not only would she enjoy being there, she probably would not want to come home. And if she did come home, she would be anxious to get back. And Mm. she did did put us in touch. And um, I wrote her, sent her an email. And then I said in the email, when you get back, after having experienced authentic Japanese food and you come back to Tucson, if you'd like, we'll go on a scavenger hunt for the best sushi in Tucson. And oh. so a year or so later, you know, we've moved into this house. The little girls, we call them the otter girls um, because they're like little otters bouncing place. They're so playful <laughs> and energetic. Um, they... Um, you know, I was with them, and then I met some other wonderful ladies, you know, between 18, excuse me, in their 20s to their 60s. You know, I mean, just wonderful women. So anyway, about a year later, I get a letter 
um, at home that's on some Japanese stationery that's really distinct to teenage mm. Japanese girls. And it was written part in katakana, which is a, an, in hiragana, a level of Japanese, and part in romanji, you know, in English. And lo and behold, it's from this young professor, this professor's daughter, and she asked me, she tells me that they're back, and if I'm still up to it, she'd love to go on this. Wow! (laughs) So I put this really fun, you know, I always believe this element of fun is essential (laughs) in everything that we do. I also believe that um, music it should be a part of everything that we do, big and small, and uh, you know, ways any opportunity to celebrate life mm. and to share that joy and life. Uh, let's do it. So, put this really fun scavenger hunt together, <laughs> and um, started you know getting requests from other. Adult women say, you know, when I just mentioned to them, like, man, I'd love to go. Can I do that? You know, (laughs) while we were out, you know, and these girls did not know one another. And then there was another lady who has an incredible story with her daughter. Her daughter joined us, and a young lady that was 28 from Raytheon joined us. Another lady that's a high level exec that was 40, she joined us. And then there was me. So by the time we got to the second restaurant, they were starting to you know, feel more comfortable with one another and with the food. And by the time we got to the fifth restaurant, um, we were laughing and talking. And I'd asked one young lady um, what she had always dreamed of doing. I had just met her that night. And she told me right, that she liked to write children's books. Wow. And everyone, you know, and then, you know, we were applauded her and asked her why. And then we said, well, you have, you know, five sisters and two brothers or four sisters and two brothers, what do you guys do when you're together? And she said, well, we like to sing. And so, oh, what do you like to sing? And everybody's, you know, really interested. And she's kind of shy, and she said, well, you know, most kids might, you know, people my generation aren't familiar with the music we like to sing, but we like to sing the Andrew Sisters and songs like that. Well, it turns out this other young lady who had been in Japan was the, you know, initiated this, um, said, oh, I used to sing in the Tucson Girls Choir. Do you know Chattanooga Choo Choo? Well, they start singing it, and they're, it was beautiful, like the heavens open and angels sang. Right. <laughs> and by the time they finished, the whole restaurant was applauding. Wow. And so <laughs> then we went to the next girl and asked, you know, what do you dream of doing? And what we, what I observed and what I heard, Melanie, was that the younger the girl, the immediate response she had in connecting with an answer to her dream, associated with her dream. No matter how small or how big it was, she could immediately and enthusiastically say, articulate what her dream is. And I believe that also goes back to that Wayne Dyer example. You know, it's associated with that spirit voice in us, speaking mm-hmm. to us, reminding us of, of our purpose, our mission in life and on earth. So, But what I also observed and noticed was that when we got the older the, the young lady, the longer it took her mm. and to answer and the more emotional it became. Wow. 
So the 40-year-old lady, was her eyes were tearing up. Hmm. And so um, just to keep her anyone from feeling awkward or embarrassed, I said, well, we'll come back to you. And then we went to the youngest otter girl who said, I've always dreamed of working at Target. (laughs) (laughs) So she said, all my life, all my life, I've dreamed of working at Target. She's all of eight, right? (laughs) And and so we said, why, I said, why Target? And she said, that's the coolest store on the planet, and you can make people have, people have so much fun when they're in there. Wow. So then we go back to her sister. We go back to the 40-year-old who had really connected with this younger 8-year-old girl sister, um, Hannah. And so we asked the 40-year-old lady, you know, older lady, Jennifer, you know, okay, let me make it easier. When you were Hannah's age, because they had connected in 10, what did you dream of doing? She immediately had an answer. Wow. Eyes lit up, her face, you know, was no longer flushed. She said, I dreamed of singing and dancing on Broadway. Well, guess what? The two of her, she and Hannah had connected that evening, and that was Hannah's dream. Oh, wow. And Mm. it's like she saw the little girl in herself in Hannah. Mm -hmm. And what became emotional was where did I get off course Mm -hmm. and stop believing in that dream and experiencing that dream? So we had a sleepover at my house. (laughs) And (laughs) the next morning we went to, I took the girls to a tea house and I was listening to them. We continued the conversation. We were laughing. Such a beautiful setting and fun. And so I said, maybe girls we shouldn't take for granted the experiences we have together. Mm. You know, what is how could we what could we do to encourage other women and girls to connect with that dream voice within them? And I don't remember if this is if I'm recalling this accurately, but here's how I'm remembering this part of what happened with Girls Fly. The younger girls said, yeah, let's show other girls how they can fly. Wow. And, that was, mm-hmm. and so from there, we said, well, what would we do? And we just started playing with it. You know, well, gosh, I would have a pilot come, you know, that could show women, how girls, how to fly. And then someone said, no, I just want to learn how to write, you know, children's stories. Mm-hmm. And another, and so I always wanted to learn, you know, what was your dream when you were growing So I used to like to ride horses, and I still do. Well, let's have an equestrian experience. And then the 28-year-old Raytheon girl said she'd like to help other women and girls see that they could climb Mount Lemon and be healthier. So what you came out from Denver and you experienced that was the test run was we had expected um, maybe 50 women and girls, 8 to 28, to come that day. We identified 24 different venues, what became 24 different venues for simultaneous girls' fly experiences throughout the city of Tucson. Well, we ended up having 608 attend. Whoa! (laughs) 86. And we had an author, you know, a high, a wonderful, recognizable, you know, well-published 
author Cindy Perlman come from Nevada and share with women and girls how to find their written voice and how to write their stories and why they should never give up on that. She shared her story and her dream. We had a, we had pilots come, um, private pilots, commercial privates, representatives from women in aviation. We had wow. equestrian experience because of my experience. We had the the hikes along Mount Lemmon. We had Olympians come. You know, we had... Uh, a wide variety of experiences where the registration was based off of the answer to one question. Of these four categories, all my life I've always dreamed of doing this. And that way, innately eliminated all of the boundaries that we commonly put up that disable us from mm-hmm. our dreams and our ability. And that day the women and girls had seeds planted and nourished that enabled them. And we also include in all the girls' fly experiences as well, someone with a visible, quote-unquote, disability mm-hmm. because they do incredible things despite that disability and they share and demonstrate and model what we're able to do because whether we acknowledge it or not, if we suppress it or we're aware of it, what disables us and disconnects us from our dreams is really not always a visible disability. Mm -hmm. So a visual and audible and an experiential reminder that there's no limitations for our God in helping us fulfill the mission that we signed up for called this wonderful life that we have. So we have Jessica Cox as one of our partners. She's the only licensed pilot perhaps in the world with Mm -hmm. no arm. And she plays piano. She's a black belt in karate. She's a pilot. She's an absolutely incredible woman. We have other um, women and girls coming on board with um, visual disabilities that we're um, partnering with. And we create an experience with community-level partners that enables and connects women and girls of all ages to the power of their dream because if that is not nourished and acknowledged, then all the rest of it truly is in vain. You know, it really is in vain. So we were honored to have you there, and you witnessed the power of prayer over all of that. Mm-hmm. And yes. then a few months later, it was taken a modified version of Girls Fly to Liberia, Monrovia, Liberia in Africa. Wow. Mm. We have Girls Fly Los Angeles coming up, Las Vegas, um, 12 Asian nations, um, you know, around the world. The the pr- purpose and the vision is to take it around the world. Wow. Extraordinary. And it it is happening. One of the things that I that I'm really excited about, and I hope I can be heard here pretty clearly, um, yes. about Girls Fly is that it is worldwide, it is global, and this is really exciting. There are two things I think that come to mind that I'd love for to hear more about, and that's really 
um, Gail Sylvia Global um, and, and what that is and who that is right now um, and how Girls Fly is connected. Obviously, I do know that one of the other places, of course, Girls Fly will be going to is Belize. And yeah. I wonder if you can share a little bit more about how this great dream that girls are being able to live into into their own hearts and your dream now of Girls Fly is actually going to take place really soon in Belize. Absolutely. Yeah, July 6, 2013, I will go back and fulfill a commitment that I made to the First Lady Kim Simplis-Burrow and to women and girls and an organization called Project Cure um, mm-hmm. to come back to Belize. And that commitment, um, even though it may not have been audibly expressed, it was a promise that and a longing that I made while there between my God and myself, my Lord. Mm-hmm. And because, again, I can't, I just don't have it within me, Melanie, to be able to see a need and just step over it, you mm-hmm. know, or to walk away from it. And to to say, oh, I'll pray for them and hope they get that figured out. You know, I, yes, I will pray. And sometimes that power of that prayer is my role in addressing the need. Um, but most often there is some other physical response that I feel inclined or nece- that's necessary for me to do, which is why, as a habit, I don't watch the news because it's too emotional <laughs> for me. It's too mm. training, and wow. I um, so Sylvia Global Media, um, which this broadcast is um, airing on, Sylvia Global Media Network was seeded out of of a, a pretty devastating health experience and having to really walk my faith even though I couldn't walk. (laughs) And it happened. You know, actually it turned out that, you know, I had some history that was forming with a heart, my problem with my heart. And because I have always been so athletic and um, very conscientious about fueling my body for the purposes of fuel and um, staying healthy, uh, it was becoming quite perplexing as to why I was gaining weight and I was feeling fatigued. And uh, and then we also owned multiple businesses at the time and uh, back in, during Girls Fly in Tucson. And there was a lot of um, other related stress. So for me, one of the ways of managing stress is resting, but rest for me also not all, in addition to good night's sleep and being still and a routine that includes quiet time. Um, rest for me also means going outside of my own immediate needs and doing something fun like a girls' fly event. So like <laughs> that's that's a, a, a that's a nice mental recreation for me. Um, that's fun. So, and the size of it, and the magnitude of it, doesn't doesn't scare me. You know, it's like, yeah, let's do that. Let's create something beautiful called this experience. Well, what happened? Uh, I I didn't realize at the time, but I was showing signs of a 
virus that had affected the muscle of my heart, myocarditis. And then my dad had a stroke two weeks after Girls Fly. And then several so I was driving back and forth from Arizona to California each weekend and made a commitment to God uh, that this other longing that had been in my heart for years that I was addressing as best I could under the circumstances, but I wasn't really quite sure what it was, the work that I was to be doing. I just knew that the work that I was doing at that time was not where I was supposed to stop. I wasn't supposed to stay there. You know, it was a season of time in my life that allowed me to learn and experience some incredible things, but that was not the end of what my purpose in life was. So I did this trek, this eight-hour drive every Thursday to um, returning on Sunday, go back, you know, make sure I was at the office doing what I needed to do Monday through Thursday, turn around, and it was my time of fellowship with God, you know, and really searching and praying for guidance and strength and courage because some major decisions were having to be made. And they were having to be made off of faith and were going to require a tremendous amount of sacrifice. So by um, November, um, my dad's condition was becoming quite frail. I ended up collapsing, um, and it turned out it was my heart. And I was pretty much actually up until last December, you know, uh, there were moments when I was up and about, and then I'd have a relapse. So I was pretty close to bedridden um, for mm. 15 months. Well, wow. my brain was still functioning, you know, my spirit, um, but my heart and my body were kind of limiting me. Mm. And so I was scheduled to speak in Istanbul with a wonderful organization I'm a part of called Women Moving Millions, and we had been working on that, preparing for that since May in the emergency room when I first heard about it, and it was going to be the following April, so certainly I thought I should be able to do that. Well, April came, and I could not travel. So the using the technology available to us, um, I was Skyped in hmm. to participate in, to, in the workshop. And it was quite incredible to be able to see my friends and other women from around the world at this AWID Association for Women's Conference, 2,400 women. Wow. And they could hear and see me. And I'm here in Southern California from the waist up, makeup, Mm. earrings, all dressed up, and the waist (laughs) down, had on my pajamas, you know. So using the technology, and I had done a traditional radio show when I lived in Cleveland. So after we went off the air, which was about 4.30 in the morning on April the 8th, I was sitting here trying to figure out if there were a way to continue this incredible conversation through the Internet with the technology so that other women and girls could share 
the good that they're doing on behalf of women and girls around the world mm-hmm. and the best practices associated with that in our own words, in our own images, our own voices, and leverage that to really expand the conversations that are positive and the good that is around us and the joy that comes from being effective at doing good work. So what ends up happening, my son sees that I'm up, you know, on the iChat, Mom, are you okay? What are you doing? And I tell him, and he read two days later, we launched Sylvia Global Media Network. Oh. And I have get I emailed some of the women who are still in Istanbul and say, you know, I want to test this out. <laughs> you know, can you call this number via Skype at this time? And sure enough, you know, we had a good connection, an incredible message. Oh, let's try it again. Okay, we did something else. Called a couple other friends. You know, can you call this number? Let's have a conversation about the work you're doing in construction and in business. And then I stumbled upon the analytics on a screen mm. with a streamer that I used, Blog Talk Radio, and saw that there were over 5,000 listeners the, you know, the first um, show I did. And I didn't know where, how they even <laughs> found me. You know? And then the next one, there were eight, you know, the next one, there were 8,000. And then there were, you know, three, it was just like, what? And so... Uh, I thought, well, let me be a little bit more strategic in this. Let me try and elevate some of the conversation. And I tested one with my goddaughter and said, let's do one. She was in college. There were a couple of them graduating from college. You know, let's do one on international students and the realities of studying in America versus the expectations before coming. And there were over 29,000 listeners. Wow. And then I had, you know, Randolph Duke on, there were 34,000. And then, I, you know, so it just keeps growing. So what the platform of Sylvia Global Media is, is it's intended for women and girls, organizations, and businesses to use the platform to promote positive messages, innovative global, what our tagline is positive media, for innovative global thinkers, doers, and donors and have a place to know that we can have these types of conversations. They're archived here. They can be shared and repurposed. And now we've moved into a place where people are using the conversations to actually affect change. So in in policy change in community and just change in general. That's beautiful. That is extraordinary. Wow. Oh, this is great. Well, Gail, Sylvia, we've um, reached our first hour of conversation, and this is so wonderful. It's been a gift to hear so much of your own story um, a gift to hear really where you are now and where you're headed. Um, there are several things that come to mind in terms of questions, but I want to honor at least our first hour and then to uh, take a deep breath within us, a gratitude of prayer for the stories and words that have been shared. 
as we move forward into hearing more about you and about your story and about your life. Thank you so much for all you've already shared. It's it's quite a pleasure. You had asked the question before we take a little break here, um, the connection between Sylvia Global Media and Girls Fly. So we'll pick up there after we take a few moments break. So stay with us, and we'll continue the discussion. Thank you. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City. We're back. This is Gail Sylvia, and the host and a founder, the founder of Sylvia Global Media Network. And what a special uh, show for me today to have Dr. Melanie Harris here 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 with us as she listens to my story. Melanie, thanks so much again for being here today. Thank you. It's my gift and my pleasure. I'm so excited to hear your story and so grateful for all you are sharing. Thank you so much. I'm I'm following your lead. So whatever you keep going. Great, great. Well, in our first hour, there were one or two beautiful questions that emerged, um, one of which really was the connection between uh, the work of Girls Fly in Belize coming up and how that's connected to um, Gail Sylvia Global. So we want to go back to that question. But there was also this really great golden nugget that you mentioned that you would share with us about philanthropy and your heart for philanthropy. I know you well enough to know that all of these are deeply interwoven and connected, but wherever you'd like to begin, at least telling us a little bit more, just following up from the first hour, on the connection between Gail Sylvia Global and Girls Fly in Belize, that would be great. Thank you. Yes, the company name is Sylvia Global Media Network, and I am, you know, the founder, Gail Sylvia um, Pullen. And the connection between Sylvia Global Media Network and Girls Fly is that Girls Fly is an event that is sponsored by and hosted by Sylvia Global Media Network. And it's really intended to be an extension of one another. So using the digital platform to keep women and girls connected and then having an event that brings them face-to-face to connect and to stay connected is really where the two intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason for Belize and the philanthropy piece is that I had the opportunity in May of 2011, a 
um, actually June, a couple few weeks after the first girls fly, to travel to Belize with an organization called Project Cure. And I was introduced to Project Cure and Dr. Douglas Jackson through a wonderful lady named Janita Gordon, who at the time was one of the development staff at the Arizona Community Foundation. And the reason Janita and I met is because of a very public um, large gift that our family was committing to with the University of Arizona, the College of Public Health, Mm. the um, Public Broadcast Network, PBS, and Mm -hmm. to Starve Her Heart. The reason for um, this visibility and this philanthropy piece is all tied into my story as a candy striper growing up in Pomona, California. you know, I, this wonderful community of Pomona and doing volunteer work at a high, at a hospital from 7th grade to 12th grade um, mm-hmm. as a candy striper. Each week I would walk through those front doors and be greeted by these gold-framed images of um, these kind of grumpy-faced-looking white men. <laughs> And, you know, then you'd walk through into the garden and there'd be these pavers with the names of people that donated money for that garden or that a bench near the hospital. You know, and I really, again, observing and paying attention, uh, acknowledging and giving credibility to whatever was around me and not denying what I was seeing or feeling within and the reaction I would have, I think it stayed with me through the years. I know it stayed with me. So um, I would see similar images when we would go on family outings to like the Huntington Library or to any other museum or public places where someone who was called a philanthropist donated tremendous amounts of money to make that, experience possible for people that would never know them, that they would never necessarily see. And what stayed with me was that I never saw anyone who looked like me in those gold frames hanging on these walls of beautiful, incredible gifts to a community, whether it's the library or the hospital or the museums. And then as our children, you know, were growing up and would watch PBS, I was always intrigued at the end of the broadcast. You know, this show was made possible by the MacArthur Family Foundation. You know, I'm wondering, well, who are the MacArthurs? And something inside of me, Melanie, I innately understood why they did it. I didn't know how they did it. And I did not know why I didn't see more people who look like me being acknowledged for doing this type of, this level of work, especially when I lived in a home and in a community growing up during the civil rights era in particular, where it was filled with people who give. And they give so deeply and so richly from their resources, as limited as those resources may appear to be in comparison. In our world, they were abundant, and there was always enough 
to invite more to the table or to share or to give in some way. Um, What I also remember feeling was that, I don't know why, but I, there wasn't any reason, there wasn't, I should not ask the question. It, It seemed inappropriate to ask the question, you know, why don't I see black and brown and Asian people in these frames? Aren't we philanthropists too? Mm. And it took, you know, I, you know, it, until very recently, I, you know, I started to think about that because I've been speaking so often on this topic um, here recently. Um, why I never asked that question, you know, if it was because. Um, no, I, maybe maybe here's one of the reasons I never asked the question at home was because in high school, again during the civil rights era, um, our high school class, the class of '78, was a really unique group of students. Unique in in our the parents had consciously made a decision to send their kids to schools that were integrated, and in this case, the white, the high school, Pomona High School, because there had been a lot of white flight, but the parents that remained in the community by and large had chosen to stay there. Hmm. And so their kids and um, our, you know, it was, uh, it was by choice that we wanted to make a difference and to be different. Hmm. And... So I have wonderful, wonderful memories of this incredibly integrated, cross-cultural, formative years of my life, despite the things that were going on around us and in the rest of the world that were um, contrary. So I remember with some friends at lunch who were um, black and white asking the white friends, you know, because a couple of them, their fathers were physicians or prominent business leaders, you know, were those, were their parents on the walls at the Pomona Valley Hospital, were those their grandparents in this case? And I remember them laughing (laughs) in the kind of laugh, um, laughing and say, no, those are rich people. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no way, man. Are you kidding me? Those are rich people on those walls. And us thinking, the black kids on the other side of town, right, thinking, well, we thought you guys were the rich people. Like, shoot, we're not rich. (laughs) And so beginning to you know, see that, huh, just because they were white didn't make them rich, you know, even though most of them had cars and most of us were still walking to school, you know, in their mind, they, no, those were rich white people. (laughs) And so something about all of these experiences stayed with me through the years. And, you know, I was in Peace Corps and Mm. there's a, you know, an incredible story of behind with that. Uh, and coming back, and I went to school and I studied in Japan. I was an exchange student to Switzerland. And wanting to see and longing to see more of the people that were in my world exposed 
the world for the world to see and know them and be exposed to them and to know that I wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, um, fast forward, you know, many years later, my husband and I formed a nonprofit called Better Communications Incorporated, BCI, mm-hmm. which was intended to um, increase the number of low-income and minority students, so that way I could include the white students from the Los Angeles, Pomona, and Pasadena Unified School District to expose them to more international experiences, especially associated with the sciences. And my husband worked at Hughes Aircraft at the time. So we did things uh, with, you know, we had students, including our kids, uh, you know, as young as eight and nine years old building robots and computers, learning binary numbers, taking Japanese language classes, taking Russian language classes, going to space camp, and trying to raise the money for them to go overseas. And walking into the office of a development director um, and being quite nervous, you know, and really very nervous and holding the hand of God as I did this at the UNICAL office in downtown Los Angeles, hoping that they would fund us for the international piece. And I was so thrilled, you know, to see and surprised that I was meeting with an African-American man. And I thought, oh, good. (laughs) Oh, what a relief. You know, he'll get, he'll understand. So we go to his office and he, I remember him being very tall and my husband's tall. So if he seemed tall to me, then he was really tall. Um, Sitting across from him at his desk and he leaned back in his chair and put his feet up on his desk with the bottoms of his feet facing me. And asked me in his arms folded across his chest to explain BCI to him and what I was seeking. So I tried to ignore the rudeness of his posture and with enthusiasm shared these wonderful, incredible students that had been interviewed and accepted and were in this program called BCI from these three school districts, the kinds of responses we were getting and the importance of this international experience. And then he cut me off and sat up in his chair and said he had two sons and that they had um, the good fortune. Uh, he understood what I was talking about because he had two sons. And they had one had studied at the Sorbonne and another one had studied somewhere else overseas. And they had traveled a lot as a family. And then he looked at me quite sternly and said, lady, the only thing you need to be focusing on with those kids you're working with is making sure they don't get pregnant and that they're able to graduate from high school. And I remember the combination of rage and disbelief and disappointment and this fire raising up from my belly to my eyes um, and and I grew up being my grandmother calling me timid. So this was a this next piece is pretty significant. <laughs> I in that split second um, had to make a immediate decision. Was I going to stay humiliated 
by him and beg for his money or was I going to do something else? And in the split second, my mouth opened and said, I'm quite happy that your children, your sons, have had the opportunity to experience life overseas. And some reference he had made to a golden parachute that at the time I didn't know what that meant. And he said, but these children, their lives and their capabilities are of equal value to that of your sons. And obviously, you are not the person we are supposed to be bringing them in contact with. And I walked out. I grabbed the papers off his desk, and I got to the elevator and stood there in silence because other people were on there. And then I got to my orange VW Volkswagen convertible (laughs) and burst out crying. (laughs) And then there were no cell phones. So I drove to my husband's job and called him from a pay phone and told him at lunch I would be sitting out there. And he was waiting for, you know, to hear how things went anyway. And it was at that moment um, in the car with him crying that he and I decided that never again would we ask or beg someone else to believe in what we could see was um, required or we would never again ask for, beg for someone else's money or ask for someone else to believe in a dream that God had given to us because of our belief in the value of other people's lives. So from there, we went from this nonprofit mentality to, okay, how do we earn our own money so we can give it away and do whatever we think is important and not have to ask permission from anyone else? And that set us on a 20-year, 30-year track that led to us opening a commercial brokerage business and a a physical therapy office and then selling those businesses and becoming a McDonald's owner-operator, then moving to Cleveland, and then all along still trying to figure out, okay, how do we, as our wealth increased, our knowledge needed to increase associated with each of these steps and these phases of our development um, in business, spiritually, and financially. And at one point, you know, at, at one point, you know, you're, you're we're in a room with a lot of absolutely incredible, generous. African-American, successful people from a variety of professions. And during the dinner one night, I just asked, you know, at that table, there were some people there with much greater financial um, wealth, at least in appearances, than us. And But we were all there for because of our accomplishments. And I asked them how they, who they use to help them create their philanthropic strategic plans. Mm. And the table went silent. And one of the wealthiest um, men there at the table with um, some mashed potatoes in his mouth said, pointed his fork at me and said, 
black folks don't do that. That's what white people do. We do all our giving through the church and the sororities and through our businesses just trying to give those people jobs. Hmm. And once again, I felt that fire, that rage, that disappointment. <laughs> like, dang. So it really doesn't matter how much or how little someone has. It comes from a place in their heart. Hmm. And that in communities of color, we don't have these conversations associated mm. with this word philanthropist. And so even on Sylvia, so on Sylvia Global, you will see categories such as health, faith, business, leadership, wealth, philanthropy. They're mm. all reflections of my own experiences and conversations that need to be happening. And whether it's us in those conversations or us learning from those conversations. And so the philanthropy piece um, required me to become more strategic in our giving as we grew our wealth. Excuse me. And our son at that point was attending a very prestigious um, all-white um, except for seven classmates in his class, the largest graduating class of black students at the time, um, school called University School, an incredible school. And he saw me reading lots of books on this topic, philanthropy, and asked me why and what I was doing. And then he real nonchalantly said, well, why don't you talk to so-and-so's mom? And I said, oh, why? He said, well, dang, you know, the library's named after them. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the sports arena downtown is named after them, you know. And I said, I said the one that I'm always talking to at the hockey games? He goes, yeah, that's his mom. And I said, oh, my gosh, okay. You know? And so um, then eventually, you know, we got to Arizona um, and my heart and going into the cardiac care units over the years and the kind of treatment that I was either experiencing or observing associated with women of color and heart health issues Mm. um, was not pleasant. And then they're wheeling me down the hall in those wheelchairs or gurneys past those gold-framed faces. Mm. (laughs) And I'm thinking, you know what? Our philanthropy needs to go to put faces of color on these walls in a hospital, and it needs to go as a voice throughout media, which is why the PBS play, and it needs to go globally to support the training internationally of any student who will go and study health in order to be culturally competent in the execution of services. So our commitment was to endow a chair for a physician at Sarver Heart, and is. We're still fulfilling it. And a scholarship at the College of Public Health for a student to study through their global health program and to PBS for a public service mission. 
And to do this in a way that not only models what needs to be increased, which is more people of color as being viewed as philanthropists, because we're here, we exist, but to also share globally those images. So you'll see women like Deborah Santana and others um, on Sylvia Global talking about their philanthropy and their faith and their leadership and how they earned it and why they give it away in very big and bold ways. And they are not all wives of entertainers and athletes. They are not all um, attorneys or physicians. Uh, They come from a wide variety of walks of life around the world. And in doing this, I believe, Melanie, that not only do we help to re-image the word philanthropist, we also re-image the people who are on the various ends of that giving spoon, that people of color are often viewed as only being on the viewed as being on the receiving end of that philanthropic spoon, but now we're also being viewed as being on the giving end. And in changing that and highlighting the women of influence of all levels of society, that that is, in fact, the global call to action that I'm committed to that's associated with women and girls' health. And that by highlighting the first ladies of influence in our lives at all levels of society from our homes to whether they're the mother of one or they're the mother of millions as the first lady of a nation, that we then begin to re-image what's associated with women and people of color and nations of color and re-image what we see and think of as ourselves. So back to Project Cure in Belize. Um, wanting to partner with someone who understood the the scope of this vision given to me during the course of my life, um, reaffirmed during the Girls Fly experience, and then reaffirmed with those thousands of faceless listeners while I recovered from my own heart problem with the technology through Sylvia Global Media Network, mm. how who who is giving philanthropically across the board that retains the dignity and the respect for the people? Mm. And let's show the diversity of this and highlight this. So Project Cure does it and does it exceptionally well, has been doing it for more than 25 years, and they only enter the country at the invitation of either someone from the Minister of Health's office, the office of the president, but most often at the request of the First Lady of the Nation. Mm. So my commitment was they wanted me to come and see who they are, how they do it, and what they do. That's when I met the First Lady um, that first time. And my commitment was to go back and tell their stories 
and share their experiences and their images with the world and to bring Girls Fly to Belize. And it stayed with me all those months of recovery and the multiple requests to bring Girls Fly to communities. In my heart, I felt like I could not do that until I went back and fulfilled that commitment with the ultimate goal of Girls Fly being to somehow structure it in a way that it can be used as a philanthropic vehicle for others in their own community to Mm. fuel their own philanthropy. So Mm. the proceeds that we receive from Girls Fly, a part of the model that was test ran in Tucson, was in part through the the ticket sales, the registration, because not everyone paid. We had scholarships so that we could be all-inclusive. So women and girls from group homes, from the foster care system, the mothers of those group homes, the, the girls in the group homes, to attorneys and elected officials. We're all participants side by side in Girls Fly, mm-hmm. but that didn't matter, nor did they know, because they only re- registered and connected and were assigned based on the answer to that question mm-hmm. of all my life I've always dreamed. So mm-hmm. it really isn't about um, exclusively where we're from, what we have, or who we think we are in the smaller scheme of things. It's what we have and what we do with what we have, where we are, because in the grander scheme of things, it's our giving from our hearts that qualifies us as philanthropists, and that's our level of influence. Thank you. Mm. The vision of philanthropy that you have and the way that it is touching the hearts of so many around the planet, around the globe, is remarkable. It is indeed, I believe, a vision of God that is manifesting through you to me and to so many I wonder, Gail Sylvia, just going back a little bit to the 15-month sabbatical that you had, um, often at your own bedside and often communing with God. What are some of the other gifts that came out of that 15-month sabbatical? Because it sounds like the deepening of your vision for philanthropy the structure of even including philanthropy as a main arm of Girls Fly, the global outreach, the birthing literally of Sylvia Global came out of that 15-month sabbatical. What what happened then? What What else happened there between you and the Lord, between you and yourself? Um, because it does seem like you were reborn out of that bed. Wow. Well, you know, it, uh, a couple of things come to mind. 
when we when we're still, it's a lot easier to hear sounds that may have been present all along, but we were not aware of. Mm. To see sights that give us a different appreciation that were there all along that we may not have been had a deeper awareness of. Mm. And I think that a part of what happened during that 15-month period was I was forced into a greater stillness. Mm. And in what seemed to be the most untimely of of circumstances. (laughs) But then being still also gave me the clarity that I didn't realize I was lacking. Mm. Uh, Our son, whose name was Angelo, up until that point for more than five years, probably closer to 10, but at least the previous five years had been saying these words to me. Mom, I I understand that the work that you and Dad are doing is important and does allows you guys to do great things and to have help share great influence, but you're not supposed to be doing that. It, it's it's time for you to be doing your other work. Mm-hmm. And I would always respond, well, I don't know what that is clearly, and I can't stop to figure it out right now because I'm too busy doing what I have to do, you know, to take <laughs> care of our, you know, our livelihood. Mm-hmm. And filling in those broken places of my own heart no wonder I would end up having a problem with my heart Mm. because physically, you know, the doctors throughout the years were saying, this is really quite astonishing. Even at the point when I collapsed and they did the angiogram, they said, you have the physical heart of an athletic 26-year-old. And I mean, my they said, so whatever you have been doing, in your diet and your exercise, keep doing it. Mm. But it really ended up being that it wasn't the physical parts of my heart that were broken, that it, I think it had more to do with the broken, being, feeling brokenhearted. Mm. And how do I find this and reconcile this longing, this voice in my inner heart that no one else can see or hear? but my husband and son saw and heard it, and with what my obligations and my responsibilities call me to do on a day-to-day basis. Oh, boy, excuse me. Mm -hmm.
And how do we, well, I guess for me, I'll just make it in the first person, you know, that drive, that that spiritual journey of choosing to get in my car and make an eight-hour drive one way each week on the outside other people could clearly understand it's the love of a daughter toward her father and wanting to be with her wonderful family. Mm. But I think really on the inside, it was this, Lord, this this part of my brokenheartedness needs to die. <laughs> you know? mm. And the healthy part of my heart needs to be made stronger. Mm. And fear, you know, um, trying to walk and stay on the faith side in the face of fear associated with responsibility and obligations and the risk of pursuing this deeper heart's calling, which is also the dream within. Mm. And so during that 15-month period, um, not only did I end up collapsing in California, my husband was near collapse again with valley fever in Arizona. Mm. And we were in the midst of a major, major business transaction. And my dad's dying. And I'll never forget, I actually wrote an article on this for the Inland Valley newspaper. Wonderful, wonderful people, Dr. Um, Reverend Tommy Morrow. Um, I wrote a couple of columns for them in um, the Tucson Black Chamber newspaper. Wonderful, wonderful people as well. I mean, wonderful people everywhere in my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm usually like kind of shocked or it's like having someone throw cold water on me when I meet people who aren't so nice. You know? <laughs> uh, but um, I wrote a piece and like, here I was on December uh First, it was December 26, lying there. I could barely move myself. I was so swollen, 47 pounds heavier from water weight, you know, and because my heart wasn't pumping strong enough. And my dad's in a bed. I'm laying across my parents' bed, and my dad's in a bed next to me dying, and I'm on the phone trying to close this, you know, work in this business transaction in Arizona. And it just seemed ridiculous, you know. And then the 29th, my dad dies, and I'm there laying across the bed, and I get a call from some people wanting some documents for this business transaction, and I'm trying to figure out on my phone how to email it to them, and I'm laying next to my dead father. You know, it's like there's something wrong with this picture. And I hung up the phone. I just, mm-hmm. like, told him, like, you know, my dad is dead next to me. I already told you he died. Mm-hmm. And maybe the combination of all of these experiences back-to-back where something just clicks within and mm-hmm. says, enough's enough, I surrender it all. Mm-hmm. And what an incredible, you know, we sing that song in church, I surrender mm-hmm. it all. 
But, oh, my gosh, when you're in the face of the lion mm. and having, like, that man at that Unical, you know, are you going to surrender what appears to be at all right now? Do you know what that may mean? Wow. Or are you going to trust God, the God that you've been holding hands and that's brought you this far and know that he will never truly leave or forsake you, Gail, Sylvia, and just take that walk and start to heal the brokenness within, even though there wasn't, like, a brokenness that, uh, you know, it was a very private business-related disconnect, you know, brokenness. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm Mm -hmm. cashing it all in, you know, Mm -hmm. God. And hoping and believing, again, that April trip was coming up, you know, I'll be well. God will answer by then. I'll be well. I'll be healed. I'll, you know, I'll be back in dance class. I'll be back on my bike. You know, here's somebody that danced on average 12 hours a week, cycles wow. three days a week, at least, mm. you know, anywhere from 20 to 65 miles, you wow. know, in the gym. And here I am, 47 pounds heavier, can barely walk, mm. laying next to my dad who's dead, and my husband is in Arizona sick and there's still something inside of me that's saying our God is still good. Mm. He's he's still a God of love and whatever he's planned for me, it's got to be a lot bigger because this is quite a big mess right here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, press down and overflowing. So during that 15 months, um, six of them, my husband, I couldn't get to him, and we're very close. I mean, we work together. He couldn't get to me. Nobody could that we knew except for just two people we thought could could understand the the depths of not only our despair during those three years of intense business things, but physically, I don't think I would have been able to really articulate the depths of my own spiritual journey associated with the outward physical manifestations and so I just stayed here Um, a wonderful godson found us a wonderful place Um, and he had been saying for I didn't realize how much we were had been loved or are loved Um, Mm. we'd been gone from California for almost 20 years I had no idea um, how much we met to people here until I was coming back and forth with my dad. Mm. And they had no idea how sick I was because um, I'm so accustomed to just, you just buck up and keep going. You know, you got to do what you got to do until I collapse, you know. Mm. And then in that moment of really just laying in the dark probably should have been many times 
having breakfast with my dad, my brother, and Jesus, you know, because I should have been in a cardiac care unit. Mm. But uh, it was like wrestling with the angel, you know, like you're not leaving me until you heal me. Mm. And you heal this circumstance and this brokenness in my heart completely. Mm. And you replenish and restore according to your promises. And that that future and that hope that we've been clinging to for these 30-plus years since BCI, that the fullness of your dream and your purpose for my life and what gives me joy in the work that I do with the life that's been given to me is fully realized and that I'm back in dance class on my rollerblades and on my bike now that you brought me to this dream location answered from a prayer long ago here at the beach Mm. and just laying there in the dark and in the daylight having that talk with Jesus Mm. and hearing and listening to the response from heaven above. And after one of those, well, many of those moments, Melanie, um, one in particular, I reached for my Bible and it fell open to a verse. This is a brand new Bible that someone had given me, so it had not been highlighted and marked up and pages, you know, dog-eared. Opens up and it jumps out, Psalms 108, verse 1. My heart is healed, O Lord. Mm. And I give you the glory. So from that moment on, I began to speak. And that was in um, October of last year. Mm -hmm. My heart is healed. Mm. My heart is healed. Mm. O Lord, and I give you the glory. And there I am in Denver in October with Project Cure, traveled by wheelchair, but they didn't know that. Interviewed the First Lady of Mozambique and her story about the work that women and girls are doing. And next thing I know, I'm with the 15 First Ladies in New York. And next thing I know, I'm getting bombarded throughout the year for this thing called Girls Fly that people have seen and heard about, either on the website or through people who attended. People came from northern Mexico, Edomcillo, Nogales, Los Angeles, Pasadena, Nevada, Cleveland to Girls Fly Tucson. You came from Dallas. Mm -hmm. And... I thought Girls Fly was on hold until my health was fully recovered and Sylvia Global Media was in a different place because that just started flying off the cyber chart. And (laughs) then I get this request, and it's like in the middle of the night. I call it the hour when God Jesus talks to me, and I learned not to ignore it. But it's usually between somewhere between one forty five in the morning and three eighteen. 
Um, I'll be sound asleep, and it's like the Lord taps me on the shoulder and whispers in my ear, okay, this is what you need to do. Mm. And I'll be, I'll feel like I'm wide awake because I can't go back to sleep until I do something with it or make notes or pay attention. And that's what's happened with Sylvia Global. That's what's happened with, through the years, that's what's happened with BCI. That's what happened with the uh, 4,000 that we served at the U.S.-Mexico border. That's what happened with the U.S.-Mexico private sector summit that, you know, I was responsible for convening from for the entire U.S.-Mexico border region from California to Texas. That's what happens with everything that I touch, that it's really it's the Lord waking me up in the middle of the morning saying, okay, now it's quiet. There's no distractions. I want you to listen to me carefully. This is what you're supposed to do. And I just get about the business of doing it. And what that 15 months did, because I had nothing else to lose, right? I mean, physically I couldn't go anywhere. Um, You know, we gave up you know, we gave in to what God was calling us to do so that he can pour into us more of him so that we could have more to give back that exemplifies the good around us and the joy. And those two in the morning Wake-up calls, I now wake up and go, um, it's me, Lord, I hear, I'm listening. I'm here. And then I get up and do what I got to do. So I'll speak these words right now because it will be recorded. And we've prayed over it already. So our prayer right now, $300,000. By June 15, 2013, takes care of an incredible Belize experience for the girls there. It actually seeds the all of the next steps needed for the filming of that experience. It also seeds the girls' fly experience, including the first ladies for 12 Asian nations that we're scheduling. It also seeds the Girls Fly Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and it also gets me to the Nobel Women, a whole other incredible organization. And all of it, all of this work at all of these levels is really about the women and girls whose eyes I've either looked into and hugged in person or the Lord has shown me in the middle of the morning that's waiting for their dream to be released in a message that he's the ultimate dream maker. And only he can do it. The partners that come on board with us to take Girls Fly um, and plant that experience and partner with Sylvia Global to share that their message and their voices and the good, the innovative good of what's being done and what donors are doing. 
that's the that's the mission. And the rebirthing, um I, I shared, you know, with some of my associates in Women Moving Millions several months ago that I felt like I was about to I had been notified I was about to give have a home birth to septuplets and I didn't even realize I was pregnant. So I need some help. You know? <laughs> I need um, some real qualified special help here because I had no idea when that eight-hour journey began that I would be where I am right now. But I also know that I have no idea how pressed down and over- overflowing the blessings actually are that are coming because I've only had glimpses of it to what our God is actually truly doing. But what's going to be revealed to me through the experience of having faith in him and having faith in that inner voice that's within all of us, no matter how old we get. It's always a youthful voice within that's speaking to us. And I think it's that voice in that assignment that I signed up for that uh, gives me the greatest joy of doing what I do right now. And, and actually probably all of my life, but especially at a time such as this. Thank you, Gail Celia Pullen for the gift and the time and the grace, the sheer power and sheer courage of your being, and for saying yes. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for saying yes to God. Will you close this out in prayer? Mm-hmm. Gracious God, we give you thanks so much for your being in our lives, for sending us such a powerful warrior, calm and deep woman in Gail Sylvia Pullen. Thank you for the vision alive in her heart, for the pure healing that you have given her heart so that so many of us can be reborn into our own visions and callings. Thank you, O God, for the beautiful hand of mercy and grace over the prayer that we've just uttered for the manifestation of the 300,000, for the manifestation of women coming together, for the manifestation, O God, for new connections and new partnerships and for the shared vision that you have given us to live more fully into wholeness, into care, into love. God, thank you for Gail, Sylvia. Bless her. Bless her family. Bless her dreams. Bless her vision. Give her a new and fresh anointing even as we move from this moment. Bless her story, oh God. And thank you for her story blessing us. It is in your name we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. 
I love you, Dr. Melanie Harris. Thank you so much. Um, I love you, Gail Sylvia Pullen. Thank you so much. You are blessed among women and certainly called for such a time as this. Thank you for heeding that call and for living in fun and in joy and in spirit. 